Well, good morning, folks. I'd like to invite folks to come in and take their seat, and we'll get started. Already running a little bit behind because I was in a bit of a rush with my family this morning, as many of you uh, know as well the challenge. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's take time to pray and quiet our hearts before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this opportunity, an another Lord's Day, to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God, even as this local, um, uh, this, this local manifestation of, of the body of Christ. Father, we want to learn and grow, even in uh, what it means to uh, be a church, even, even uh, living as a church. So help us now, Father, uh, help me uh, to be able to teach uh, with clarity and uh, give us a listening hearts and minds to be able to grow as Christians, even as a church. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is class three. Class three for living as a church. If you got a handout, you can see today's lesson is diversity. Diversity. And you can see the subtitle there, Unity Through Breadth of Commitment. So I'm going to open with an introduction, which I think is a pretty neat story. So this story is about a man named Bill Anderson. Bill started visiting church in his early 60s. He wasn't a Christian. At the time, he taught a class at Harvard called The Madness of Crowds. So this class was on mass psychology. It examined various things like the, the New England uh, witch hunts of old. Uh, it examined other things like urban legends and financial panics. So Bill, in other words, he had a career studying crowds, understanding even the psychology of crowds and so on. But he wasn't prepared for what he was, was to be met with when he first visited a local church. Bill said, quote, I was struck with the genuineness of the diverse Christian fellowship. So he said the relationships here seemed highly uncommon in his experience. These Christians interacted, their interactions were not subdivided coalitions of people with similar interests, but rather a single unit. This is what he noticed. Well, for Bill, this would eventually lead to his conversion um, and his coming to Christ. Now, that story is from CHBC, Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, in Washington, D.C., it's a pretty neat story. So where did this corporate witness come from? Well, ultimately it comes to the local church from God's saving grace in Christ. When you become a Christian, you undergo a complete identity change. So according to the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.17, now you're a new creation. Galatians 4 verse 5, you're part of God's family. Romans 6, 1 to 8, you're united to Christ. 
So in other words, being a Christian is more fundamental to your identity than your family, your ethnicity, your job, your nationality, your sexuality, your personality, or any of the other ways that the world might seek to define identity. So the unity that you share with every other believer is more profound and permanent than any other conceivable bonds. That means that wherever the gospel exists, diversity should exist too. So in other words, diversity is a natural outgrowth of the gospel. And I know that's a, that's a buzzword in our day, isn't it? We're going to get into exactly what we mean by that. So on the one hand, diversity is more important than you might think. It's more important because as Bill discovered, when people with no worldly bonds or connections have a love for each other, even a sacrificial love in the church, it provides a, a great witness to the watching world for, the, for work that only God can do. That's one of the sort of key themes that we're see, starting to see now, isn't it? So this is, a, this is a diversity in unity that is a compelling witness to the watching world. So if diversity is an important part of our witness, and yet simply being diverse for its own sake, um, I mean, as we're going to see as we get into it, again, this is a buzzword, isn't it? So the world is all about diversity right now. So what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? Well, in this class, as we've been um, looking at Ephesians 3, we're really seeing the purpose of diversity in the context of, of the local church. So that's our first point there on your handout, the purpose of diversity. What is the biblical purpose of diversity in the local church? Let's look again at Ephesians 3. Flip to Ephesians 3. This is going to be a key text throughout this class. Ephesians 3. Eight to ten. So the Apostle Paul says this To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what is God's eternal purpose then? Well, it's for the church to display his wisdom to all creation. How does this take place? Paul uses this word mystery here. Mystery. What does he mean by this word mystery? Well, look at uh, 3 verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is part of the mystery that's being revealed in the gospel as God is saving people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So just consider this passage, this, this beautiful passage from Isaiah 40, 49 verse 6. 
This is, this is Yahweh speaking to his servants. So ultimately, we, I mean, we could say, through our New Testament uh, understanding, this is the Father speaking to the Son. And he says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this is what God is in the business of doing in Christ. This is what he's doing right now as we speak, as the gospel goes out. So the promise to Abraham, that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. Through the gospel, this is taking place. So why then, as we've looked at in previous classes, why do even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places take notice of the unity between Jew and Gentile in the church? Well, it's because of how separated they were by natural uh, barriers and even hostilities before the gospel came to them. Remember Paul in 2.14 uses the language, the dividing wall of hostility. So these two groups, they couldn't have been any more different, Jew and Gentile, right? Different ethnicity, different culture, different theological beliefs. And all of this led to an openly hostile relationship with, each other, with the two groups, right? So in other words, a first century reader reading this would say to Paul, the natural response would be, that kind of unity is impossible. It is impossible to bring Jew and Gentile together. They hate each other's guts. That doesn't work. And that is, is of course, precisely the point, right? It's, it's, it's make, God is making manifest that this work is clearly being done through him and him alone. Only God can do this uniting work. So just consider the doxology from uh, Paul in 3, 20, and 21. We're very familiar with this doxology, but think about, just think about the doxology with what I've sort of just said, with, the, with the, uh, the union that God is bringing through the gospel to people from different groups. Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, part of God doing far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine is bringing naturally hostile groups together. That's what's in view there. So Paul's aware that uh, when he describes Jews and Gentiles loving one another in the Ephesian church, despite centuries of animosity, he's talking about a unity that is infinitely beyond our human capacity to achieve. Again, this is a, this is a work of God. And notice again, I, I pointed this out uh, in previous weeks, it's through the church specifically. Through the church. So in other words, diversity is not the main point. It's unity in diversity 
and it's a unity that comes through Christ. So in other words, this unity shows off the power of the cross. So here's a basic principle of Ephesians 3. I'm going to say it twice. God is glorified when previously separated people are united in Christ and love each other despite all their differences. Say it again. God is glorified when previously separated people are united in Christ and love each other despite all their differences. So if the purpose of diversity is to display the power of the gospel, we need to look more closely at sort of what this diversity entails. And you can see that in point three of your hand out there. This is the character of diversity we're going to look at. The character of diversity. So first, boundaries of ethnicity. So the gospel is true no matter the color of your skin. No matter your cultural background. Now this is an important point to, to make though. The gospel doesn't erase the color of your skin, right? Jew and Gentile, black and white, Latino, Asian still exist, but we're united in Christ. So, so the world gets this wrong, I would suggest, in, in a couple ways, probably more ways, but I'm going to focus on two ways. On the one hand, how many folks here have heard the phrase, oh, we just need to be colorblind? Right? We just need to be colorblind. Okay, well, you can sort of understand the sentiment, right? It's trying to push back against racism. The problem with that statement, though, is, of course, there are still people of all different ethnicities. And that's a good and beautiful thing, right? So to try to, to pretend that that doesn't exist is actually, it's wrong-headed. So that would be sort of one uh, ditch, as it were. The other ditch, and this is very strong in our culture as well, basically deifies a, a, uh, a tolerant and diverse society, but without Christ being the center. So it's very, it's very contrived, it's very fabricated, it's diversity for diversity's sake. So some of you folks, I'm guessing, have perhaps had to endure diversity, equity, and inclusion training at work, right? Well, it's important just to point out, that's just cultural Marxism dressed up in nice language. That's all it is. And it's, it's pitting, it's actually, what it's doing is it's actually pitting different groups against each other. That's what the DEI training is doing. So as a church, we value ethnic diversity because it testifies that Christ is our all and the center of our identity. So you take Christ out of the picture and it just all unwinds. That's boundaries of ethnicity. What about boundaries of age? Well, if you just look at, around a, a church on a Sunday morning, I mean, even just, just sort of scanning this crowd for myself, there's folks of all different ages here, Right? I, I love seeing some of the older men, I think, you know, like Calvin Heinrichs, for example, volunteering in the nursery. It's a beautiful thing to see, right? So there's the, the, the 
the church community transcends, in other words, boundaries of age. What about economic boundaries? Our world, I would suggest, is very familiar with the rich uh, being generous to the poor. The problem, though, as, we, as we've seen, so for example, in, in, in the city of Calgary here, something that Pastor Clint has pointed out in the past is this whole concept of corporate philanthropy, right? Corporate philanthropy. The well, but it's, it's almost expected of corporations. It's almost perhaps expected of, of wealthy individuals as well. But of course, you have to make sure that you shout what you're doing from the rooftops so that everybody sees, right? You get the nice plaque with you know, the engraved plaque and everything else. You gotta make sure that everybody knows all the good deeds that you're doing. Well, how much different are our Lord's, uh, is our Lord's command to not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing? So in the church then, th- there, there are many good deeds, if you want to use that language, even of the wealthy being generous to, to the poor, to people of lower income class. But the beautiful thing is often it actually just goes unnoticed. Right? And the Lord will reward, will reward the generous. So those are boundaries of economics. What about boundaries of politics? This is a not so hot button issue. So the local church, to be clear, the local church must speak strongly on moral issues. Right? So thinking of, you know, human sexuality, um, abortion, and so on. The, the scriptures are extremely clear about these topics, but rarely does that moral authority translate cleanly into specifics of public policy. As a result, the local church should be a place where Christians with divergent views of government policy can co- find com- commonality in the ultimate reality of God's kingdom. So, some folks here might even work in politics and have different convictions about public policy. You you should be able to feel free to debate those things, right, from nine to five, but still be able to gather here on Sunday morning and worship together because we are united in Christ and we're part of God's kingdom. Those are boundaries of politics. What about boundaries of personality? 1 Corinthians 12 says that everyone has a gift and everyone is needed in the body. So just consider if a person, you know, might be a little bit socially awkward, are they going to come to church and find a refuge here? and acceptance, or are they going to just get the cold shoulder just like they do out in the world? Those who are extroverted might find it easier to make quick friendships in the church, but that makes them no more essential to the church than the quiet introvert who listens well, loves deeply, and serves wholeheartedly. So those are boundaries of personality that the gospel transcends. What about boundaries of cultural background? What do we mean by this? How, how is that different from point one, boundaries of ethnicity? 
Well, what's highlighted here under this point is, for those of us who grew up in the church, cultural background very often carries certain expectations for what a church ought to be, what a church ought to look like. So some degree of sacrifice is necessary to have a church composed of Christians from suburban, rural, urban areas. Perhaps we've got folks here from a more liturgical or a more Pentecostal background. So different religious traditions. Many different countries of origin. So all of these things are fine. We need to be honest that our church does have a certain culture, right? So we, this is an English-speaking church. We're using the English language to communicate God's word, to sing praises to God, right? We have very simple musical accompaniment here so that we can hear each other sing, right? Our songs come from the European-American tradition, so it's, it's good just to be honest about these things. But sacrifice is needed for everyone, for those of us who are in the com- culture, cultural majority and the cultural minority here. So for those in the majority, the sacrifice might start by asking folks from different backgrounds what they might do differently, or maybe in even certain things that might make them feel uncomfortable even in our church and is learning how to serve each other. When I was to say, I can think of many examples in this church of that taking place, where preferences are selflessly being put aside because we're committed to pursuing each other's spiritual good. And again, this is the kind of love that perplexes the world. It doesn't make sense to the world. So I just want to highlight again, though, it's not always easy, and this is something we're going to get into a little bit later. So let me just encourage you all to not become weary in well-doing. Just consider 1 John 3.14. says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. Well, that's the character of diversity. Let's move on to point four, the foundation of diversity. Now, you might be thinking at this point, okay, this all sounds great, but how can we grow in diversity in all these areas? Well, the first answer, and it's maybe a little bit provocative, is we simply have to do nothing. We simply have to do nothing. What do I mean by that? We'll just consider these verses uh, from Paul, Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. He says this, For he himself is our peace, speaking of Christ, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So who did this work then? Who did this work? 
Who created one new man and made this peace? It's Christ. It's Christ who has done this. So, in other words, in, in these chapters in Ephesians 2, Paul is simply describing what has taken place. There's actually no commands here. There is one command, and it's uh, in 2, 11, and 12. The command is simply to remember what God has done. Right? So, in other words, God is the one who has worked this unity. He's the one who has established it. And now, if you want to go to an imperative, it comes a little bit later, and it is that we are to maintain that unity. So you think about a vehicle, right? You purchase a vehicle. You didn't build that vehicle, but you have to maintain it, right? God is the one who has built the unity. And it's, it's up to the body of Christ to work hard to maintain it. So it needs to be pointed out then at this point that it can, it, it's very possible to, to uh, sinfully resist maintaining the unity, right? So the, the unity is established by God, but we can sinfully resist unity, right? Still battling sinful temptations. We can go against the grain of God-established unity, so assumptions about ethnicity and class and culture are often inherited and often need to be corrected by the truth of Scripture. We don't approach the subject of unity from a neutral starting point, but as fallen and complex people. So in other words, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily easy what, what I'm describing here. But it is possible by the Holy Spirit. So we begin by admitting that our gospel of unity comes only from Christ and yet we need to resist the temptation um, to resist that unity. We're called to embrace and even cultivate it. So you think about a gardener, right? The gardener did not grow those plants in the garden, but the gardener has to tend to them, Right? He or she has to water them and fertilize them and so on, but it's God who gives the growth. So there is work then. There's, there's work um, required to maintain the unity in the bonds of peace. All right, point five. How do we cultivate our unity in diversity? How do we do this? Well, first of all, again, just a little bit of a, a, a nuance or caveat again to recognize. Total or ultimate diversity won't be found in any church on earth, most specifically because we, we do speak one language, right? Any local um, manifestation of the body of Christ ne- needs to pick a language, right? <laughs> so that the whole body understands, right? So, in other words, this side of heaven... Uh, that sort of total or ultimate diversity will not be possible. It's always going to be somewhat culture-specific. So every every local church's diversity is naturally limited by its location and its language, and again, that's fine. That's, That's a good thing. So once we've recognized that, though, how do we cultivate unity and diversity in our particular context? Well, first of all, 
maybe it goes without saying, but it happens through prayer, right? It happens through prayer. But then there's a few points here you can see in your handout. How do we cultivate our unity and diversity? Well, first of all, recognize the invisibility of your culture. What do I mean by that? Recognize the invisibility of your culture. I'm not talking about being colorblind like I was just talking about. That's not possible. So let me give an example. Has anyone ever told you that you have an accent? Anyone heard that? And what's the natural response? No, 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 I don't have an accent. You do. Right? Just think of Pastor Gavin and Amanda. They have the accents. Right? So what this does is it highlights that we can very often be invisible to our culture. It's those in the majority, right? And it, so it, it, it's interesting to just consider too, folks even here from a minority culture, you know you don't have to be, you recognize the differences right away, right? It's typically folks in the majority culture that can be sort of blind to our own culture, right? So there's an interesting example here from Acts 6. Acts 6, so a conflict arose between two different groups within the church, and it was because the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what was happening, there was a complaint that came against the Aramaic-speaking Jews in the New Testament church very early on in the book of Acts. And the apostles took the problem seriously because they recognized it. this was a problem where the majority culture was failing to recognize the needs of others. I mean, this text is often looked at as sort of the birthplace of the diaconal role, and that's probably true as well. But there's cultural things going on there as well in Acts chapter 6. Uh, Romans 12, 10 to 11 tells us to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. So this must surely involve working to make the assumptions of my own culture a little more obvious to myself so that I can care well for others. One of the best ways we can do this in our relationships is simply asking thoughtful, open-ended questions to learn about others' experience of Christian life and how it may differ from ours. So again, this is part of the beauty of the body of Christ, right? You get to meet folks from all different stripes and backgrounds. So that's the first suggestion. Recognize the invisibility of your culture. Look at the second there. Embrace those who are different from you. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 says this. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So many members, but one body. You guys are familiar with this illustration. So uh, imagine with me then, if the, if the Corinthian church heard these instructions from the Apostle Paul, and immediately they went off to set up sort of special interest groups for Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Well, at that point, we'd have to say they're completely missing the point, 
right? They're completely missing the point of what the Apostle Paul is teaching there. If we only pursue fellowship with those who are just like us, um, that's exactly what these, these, uh, this passage here in 1 Corinthians 12 is warning against. Now, of course, some of you guys at this point are going to say, but Pastor Rob, does that mean that we shouldn't have men's and women's Bible studies? Does that mean that we shouldn't have a youth group at this church? Or that the ladies shouldn't go on a, on a women's retreat? Well, no, I'm not saying that at all. Having friendships in the church with those who are in the same age, perhaps the same gender, ethnicity, occupation as yourself can be a good and wonderful thing, to be sure. And God does very often use those relationships for our growth and for our sanctification. So relationships of similarity aren't bad in and of themselves. So don't, don't hear me wrong on that. But this is the point. They can be dangerous if they so characterize our community that they obscure the natural diversity that the gospel produces. Again, common interest affinity groups, that's just a natural thing in the world. It's not, it's not unique. So, so, yeah, I mean, don't feel guilty about very much enjoying the women's Bible study. That, that's a good and beautiful thing. But there's a bigger picture in behind that of the diversity that God um, has worked in the church that we need to be fostering. So just think about having a healthy, balanced diet. I know some of the men here probably need to start eating more vegetables, right? I was doing counseling with one guy recently, and I discovered that he barely ever eats vegetables. <laughs> so we want to cultivate a, a balanced diet of relationships in the church. Now, the problem with this illustration, of course, is you're thinking, okay, well, am I, am I the vegetable, right? <laughs> am I the vegetable? People just, you know, they, they have to try to hang out with me. Um, but you can see what I'm saying, right? This is, this, is, this is part of God's good and beautiful design. And part of, so, so to, to, what I'm trying to get at then is there ought to be a healthy balance of relationships in the church just like a balanced diet. And this, again, is a, it's a supernatural work of God. So just consider it this way. There should be relationships, just think of your own relationships in this church. By God's grace, you ought to have relationships where you're pouring into someone else, where you're being poured into, Right? And maybe even where you're, you're just friends just because. There is no common ground. There is no natural common ground. The only reason that you're friends is because you're united in Christ. And I would suggest if, if of those three categories, if the third category does not exist in your Christian experience so far, you ought to check yourself and see why, right? That's the bal balanced diet. So, so, so here's some di diagnostic questions then to consider in, in regards to this. 
how often do you have meaningful conversations with those who are a different age from you? With those who are different, in a different line of work than you? Uh, people from a different ethnic background from yours? How often, how often do you come together and pray with someone uh, that is different from you in one of those ways? Could you, if asked, could you tell me regarding sort of someone that's quite different from you? Oh yeah, no, I know, I know what they're struggling through right now. I know what's going on in their family life. This is one of the ways that I've been praying for them. So what if you realize you don't know many who are different from you? This is going to maybe be some uncomfortable things to consider. Or you simply want to grow in this area. Well, this leads to that final point there. You can see point C, make sacrifices for the sake of unity. Again, it's, it's interesting to consider these very well-known passages in light of the theme that I'm teaching on here. Consider Romans 12 verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So part of what Paul is getting at there has to mean what I'm talking about this morning. Offering your body as living sacrifices. So 12 verse 9, we're told love must be sincere. 12 13, practice hospitality. 12.16, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. So it's very possible to enjoy the idea of attending a diverse church and yet never lift a finger to get to know someone who's actually different from you. In that sense, God calls us not to be consumers in the church, but to be producers. So if we value diversity, we should put that into action by making personal sacrifices to see that girl. What, what do these sacrifices look like? You can see four of them there. We can sacrifice our comfort to reach out and associate with someone we're not naturally drawn to. So Mark 9.35, we just looked at this recently as Pastor Clint is taking us through Mark. If anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And I know Pastor Clint's sermon, even from Mark 10, is going to bear on this question as well of the last being first and the first last. So we can sacrifice our comfort. We can sacrifice our preferences. So just a very tangible example. What kind of food, you, 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 can, preference, you, you can sacrifice the preference of what kind of food you desire, you, you wish there was at the potluck. Or maybe you, you bring that type of food, but you try some other type. I mean, that's just a very simple example. I mean, one of the classic ones, of course, is the music, right? You, can, you could have worship wars all day long if, if you allow a church to go down that road. So you're sacrificing your preferences. We can sacrifice our resources and time to, fellow, to, to serve fellow church members in need, to host folks in our homes, to give them a ride to church, to care for their kids. 1 John 3.18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
So we can sacrifice our resources and time. Fourth, we can sacrifice our habits to make space for knowing others who, who may have different schedules for us and live in a very different area of town. So if you're someone who has to have the next three months of your life absolutely buttoned down right to the last minute, maybe you become open to being invited over to church just spontaneously on a Sunday afternoon and then vice versa, right? Maybe if you're just a you know, super carefree, you, you know, calendar, what's a calendar for? You're, you're, but, but you know that the person you're trying to get together with is a scheduler. Well, you're going to try to schedule that two months in advance or whatever it requires. So you're sacrificing habits. So again, the point in making these sacrifices isn't diversity for diversity's sake, just like the world is trying to do. It's not to check off the box and say, okay, okay now... I've sort of met my quota. I've got enough friends who are different from me. Right? Um, again, the point is this. Christ's death and resurrection has already purchased and produced our fundamental unity. It's, a, it's such a beautiful thing. Now we're seeking to cultivate that, right? To maintain it. To maintain our unity in diversity and in doing so, we testify to God's matchless wisdom and grace, the work that he's doing in his church. So what a privilege then, brothers and sisters, that we get to conspire together to cultivate our unity as a church for the sake of building one another up and making his name famous. So let me just close with this passage. You can see it there. I'm actually just going to read Revelation 7, 9, and 10, and then let me pray. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. This is what we have to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of information here. There's a lot to uh, chew through and, and think on. Maybe some challenging things, maybe some uncomfortable things. Father, we uh, just praise you that you have established this unity that um, transcends and even brings down dividing walls of hostility. Father, just pray that you would continue to teach us. We, we see much of this already at work in this church, at Calvary Grace, by your by your grace. Father, we want to be growing in these things. We want to be stretched in these things. We want to um, increase in our capacity to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace so that our witness is compelling and beautiful even to the watching world, even to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly places. So would you continue this work even in our midst for your glory and for our joy? And Father, now please uh, prepare our hearts and our minds even as we get ready for the main service. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.